Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. You are a pastor in Lancaster County, and one of the most interesting, you have an interesting congregation liturgically, geographically. You've got a former Amish in your congregation, the whole thing. I mean, you're really, you're doing it. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Conservative uh, reformed liturgical with former Amish. You know, it, it, you don't see a former Amish in a congregation that's conservative form where the pastor wears a white alb and psalms are chanted. It's just not, it's not the everyday occurrence or finding, in my experience, my humble experience. Yes. <laughs> so the first, we, this is interesting, in, in, in Eastertide here, we have the book of Acts being the, substituting the Old Testament reading. I guess this is sort of a redemptive historical thing. You're hearing the story of Israel the new Israel. I mean, there's a parallel to Israel's story and the church's story here. So we have our first reading is Acts 9, verses 36 through 43, where we kind of go from a Pauline focus in Acts over to Peter. We get this story where this, where's the, where there's this disciple, Tabitha, who, which in Greek, her name was Dorcas, which I'm sure is not the seventh grade sort of dig that it is today. I'm sure it was very <laughs> dignified at that time. And she's devoted to good works, acts of charity, and taking care of the marginal. She becomes ill and dies. Peter hears about it, and Lydia grabs or Lydia grabs Peter, a woman or someone there, and then he says to her, "Get up!" And there's a an act of resuscitation, and she arises. And there we go. It's an interesting story where you know then and you know this became known and this becomes known and people believe it's an interesting story. Not much theological commentary or anything on it in the story itself. It's just kind of Peter comes and heals just like the Lord in Luke's Gospels. Yeah, yeah. Interesting passage because if you look at the entire chapter of uh, chapter nine, it's a very important transitional chapter in the whole book of Acts. If Acts one eight. Uh, seven and eight tell us kind of the outline of book book of Acts. It's the gospel is to be proclaimed from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the Eschatos nation, to the last nation, and the the baptism examples in the book of Acts follow that very pattern. So you've had the baptism example in Acts chapter two. You've had the baptism examples in Samaria, well in Samaria, and then the uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. And now you come to a transition because the, all the rest of the baptisms are going to happen as the gospel goes across to the Gentiles. So in Acts 9, though, there's another case of baptism that happens just before this, and that is Acts 9, uh, Saul's baptism. So it, it, there's a little parallel lines are running here. So the one line is Peter's ministry, which is going to come to 
a you know a, a climax here in the next chapter with Cornelius and with the first Gentile that's baptized and the first Gentile household converts. Then you have a couple more chapters of Peter and Paul doing their thing together, uh, you know, separately but together in terms of the the book. And this is happening in chapter nine. And then you have uh, finally in chapter twelve. Uh, Peter fades out of the picture for the most part, and we don't see him again until chapter 15, I think, uh, in the Jerusalem Council. But now Paul's ministry takes off in chapter 11, and now you have all the missionary journeys to the rest of the book. So it's like the remotest part of the earth, the the eschatos nation, is the ministry of Paul. Now you have this uh, first part of chapter 9 is that, and the second part is ongoing with Peter's ministry, who accomplishes uh, through the power of God a resurrection. The word for when he says, Tabitha, arise, it's on a, a, st- a on this day meaning, I think. And it's the word used throughout Luke and, and other passages for Jesus being raised from the dead. He's He is risen. That's, that's a basic word. So a pretty amazing you know chapter in terms of where it f- sits in the book of Acts. And you, you see the, the, the ministry of Peter uh, being very significant now, he's doing a resurrection, uh, you know, of of this this woman. So amazing, amazing thing. Tabitha, arise, Tabitha, aniste me. Yeah, it, yeah, it's a very interesting passage, and you. Although it's interesting because the word resurrection is there, and yet she is just kind of she is resuscitated in the sense of, to our knowledge, she dies again. Like every the difference between Jesus. Ra- being raised and the rest of the, resu- uh, the of the come back to life stories is Jesus is the only one that that rises to die no more. Right? I mean, other everybody else rises again to the to the old form of life before the you know consummation, the new creation. So it's a very interesting thing. Although it is at least it uh, bears witness to or the resurrection, even if it's only a. Res- I, I'm like making light of it, like it's only a resuscitation. Like my wife though resuscitated somebody who was out for like 45 minutes. Really. Brought wow. him back, healthcare professional. Wow. She's good. Wow. She she's excellent at that stuff. Amazing. She also she also has smelled cancer before. She's walked into the ER. I'm like, this smells like cancer, like Hannibal. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so it's a great passage. Um, and toward the end, you see that it extends the ministry. You know, people all over are now hearing about the gospel. Many believed in the Lord. Verse forty two, and then. Uh, interesting thing, the last uh, comment here in verse 43, Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon, which means that, means that Peter was probably coming into contact with ritual impurity, something that maybe uh, would have been an issue. Not sure what uh, how, how that worked out at that time for Peter, but we know he was a very conscientious Jewish guy, um, and yet uh, here he stays with the tanner. So maybe there's some Things happening where he's opening up to to God's uh, uh, crossing the lines out of out of the Jewish um, uh, codes. Basically, perhaps there's something going on there. That certainly seems to be what happens toward toward the end of chapter twelve as well. There's. A, I was looking this morning at Will Willimon's commentary in the interpretation series. He has the he does the volume of Acts. He says this. This is great. He says on this text, every community, every family, every congregation exists within certain settled fixed arrangements of power and weakness, life and death. People are told that there is a divinely established chain of being, a fixed order in which we are to find our place and stay there. Tabitha is to stay home and let the men devise an affordable welfare system. Peter is to stay with his fishing nets and leave theology of the scholars 
and Aeneas should obey doctor's orders and stay in bed. But the word comes to these people in the presence of these who, like Peter, came out among them and stand beside them. These miraculous events are subversive of the present order, for they, are, they announce a new age, an age where reality is not based upon rigid logic or cause-effect circumstances, but upon God's promise. Each miraculous intrusion is a sign that if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, Luke eleven twenty. Every time a couple of little stories like these are faithfully told by the church, the social system of paralysis and death is rendered null and void. The church comes out and speaks the evangelical and prophetic rise, and nothing is ever quite the same. On to our epistle reading, which is, comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. So we have John, again, seeing, seeing this great multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes, people, and languages. They're standing before the throne in the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. It's almost like Palm Sunday, right? Illusion. Uh, they're crying, salvation belongs to our God. And then we see this... One of the elders addresses John saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? Uh, or John asks, I'm sorry, John asks, well, no, no, the elder addresses John saying that and, and John responds, sir, you're the one that knows. So I guess it's like a rhetorical question. And he says, uh, they are the ones that have come through the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And this is why they're before the throne of God and, and goes on to say how God will wipe away tears from all of his people's eyes. So it's a great vision, right, of kind of, you know, I'm sure that this is not what the life of the saints looked like on the ground in first century in a pagan empire. And yet, I guess this is sort of what reality looks like from the perspective of the situation room in God's heavenly kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a West Wing or a presidential drama reference, right? The sit room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's, these are the ones that have come from the great tribulation. So I guess that is going to turn on your eschatological outlook as to what this is. I think that the standard, you know, amillennial type of perspective would say this, this great tribulation is the whole of human history. And so this is a representative number of people and, and certainly the blessings that uh, come from this sound a lot like the end of the book, right? Verse 16, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lord in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and guide them to the springs of water of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So that's a strong kind of affinity to the end of the end of the story, end of the book, uh, in chapter in the last couple of chapters there. Um, so that's the case. It, it might be, and my, my view would be the kind of preterist reading of Revelation. So I think that it might be that these are actually the people that come out of the time there of uh, the last few years before the destruction of the temple. And uh, the same thing is true of them. That's true, of course, of all the, all believers that were faithful and that uh, uh, know, know Jesus and believed in the Lamb. That may be possible as well. But at any rate, it's certainly a, a tremendous blessing uh, and I think that it's the other thing is whether you whether that happened as a historical past fulfillment that this is referring to, or whether this is a kind of end of the world eschaton. Every everybody, uh, it's still the case that it's out of a, it's a great multitude, uh, which is out of many nations, um, 
And certainly by the end, we think that there will be many nations um, that are represented in these white robes. Notice the robes are white here um, with palm branches in their hands that say salvation belongs to our God uh, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice the, this equal salvation, something I've talked about with, say, Jehovah's Witnesses who don't, do not believe in the deity of Christ. Um, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and throughout Revelation 5 and into 7, the ble- the same praise and worship is given to the Lamb as to the one who sits on the throne, or to the uh, to Jesus as the one who uh, is God the Father. And that means, of course, that there's equal worship, there's equal uh, glory, there's equal nature. Um, yeah, it would be like if I was saying, nature. like if I was saying, I'm going to tell you a story about someone who is faster than a speeding bullet, who can leap tall buildings in a single bound, and I say Greg Strawbridge. I'm obviously sort of alluding to the old Superman intro, right? I'm using the Superman intro, and they're going to say, oh, it's a Superman thing. Oh, no, Greg. Like, I'm, I'm using the words for Superman, and then I'm putting your name in, yeah. which many people, I'm sure your daughters would all say is appropriate. But, you know, uh, it, but that's the kind of thing, right? They're, they're, they're using language, the same language you'd, you'd use for the Holy One of Israel, and then putting the lamb in, in with it. Yeah, that's right. It's a little more striking in Chapter 5 when it's, all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, <laughs> all things give glory to God and say the same worship to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Like that's that's even more striking. But here, I think the same illusion is made. And it's interesting that for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. shepherd. Yeah, what, what a great what a great image, right? The shepherd and Lamb, the priest and victim, kind of. It's great, like. It's it's wonderful image, and also take note that this on this particular Sunday is sort of Good Shepherd Sunday, if you will, because the Psalm of the day is Psalm twenty three, which we all know, and then the reading from chapter ten is the Good Shepherd reading from John chapter ten. Um, when you say so we all know, do you thing. think do you think Donald Trump knows it? Uh, you mean it's, uh, it's one of my favorite sounds. I love it. Pence, Pence, what's it say? I think he only knows two Corinthians. I'm not sure two if he knows two the Psalms or not. No, but yeah, I, yeah, it's great. You know, the other interesting thing I think about this text that's striking is this the multicultural, multi ethnic nature of the assembly, and I think it's interesting what the fruit of it is. It's not this sort of enlightenment constitutional liberal project, or it's not identity politics, or it's nothing earthly. It's the worship of the lamb. So it's not the, the, the unity here that transcends the things that so often are so fiercely divide human beings in every time and place is overcome, but not by something ground up like the tower of Babel or something. It's, it's overcome through their worship and, and who, for, through whom they find a common identity, which within that common identity is, is, is room for their diversity. They're not all the same. And yet there's not the need for their diversity to be played against each other because they receive their identity and all their diversity from the lamb. They don't achieve it on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course the key thing, I mean, the language here is very picturesque, but they have their robes washed and made white in the blood of the lamb. You know, are you washed? Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? That's that kind of common imagery, you know, from gospel songs and those sort of things comes right out of this passage um, that we have been washed in the blood of the lamb. 
In heaven his throne is made of gold The ark of his testament is stowed A throne from which I'm told All history does unfold It's made of wood and wire And my body is on fire And God is never far away Into the mercy seat I climb On to the gospel reading for the day, which is great reading here, and as you're saying, more Good Shepherd themes. We have Jesus in the portico, in Simon's portico of the temple here, right? And which is interestingly later where the Jerusalem church would gather at times. And some people say here, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. He says, you know, I've told you yet, you know, you haven't believed me. The works I do in my father's name testify to me but you don't believe. And then he talks about his sheep and how they hear his voice and abide with him. And then there's there's a sort of a description of things that characterize the sheep and, and, and who they are and what they do. And then there's these promises that as a result they have of being the sheep. It's a wonderful passage here. Yeah, I think that uh, the key key idea is that my sheep hear my voice, verse 27. I know them and they follow me. That's a an interesting... Um, point you know it is it is not those who are outside of of uh, this phenomenon of hearing the voice of Jesus that are his sheep there's a a very strong kind of concept of election here uh i don't know how you you know depending on where you're coming from theologically you might deal with that differently but there's definitely some kind of uh selection here my sheep hear my voice they're my sheep um they're not all they're not it's not every sheep in in the in the world it's my sheep hear my voice i know them they follow me i'll give them eternal life they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand my father has given me um what my father has given me is greater than all else and no one could snatch it out of my father's hand and then the father and i are one so there's unity of the of jesus and the father and also there is a a unity between the shepherd and the sheep and the sheep here are selected by Jesus. I would say it's a strong indication of God's selection of His people. And I think that in this case, you know, it is in the context of, you know, so John usually says the Jews when he means not just any Jew, but he means especially the leadership of the Jews and those that follow the the leadership of the Jews. He says you know the Jews are in contrast to this and. You know, they're asking him, are you the Messiah? And he says, here's what I'm telling you. Um, the, the works that I've done testify of the truth. So remember, we've already had John 6, for, we've had John 2, miracles in John 2, miracles in John 5. Nicodemus has come to him in chapter 3. You know, th- there's a number of things that he's already done. We're halfway through the whole miracle sequence of the seven signs by chapter uh, 6. And... And here we are, you know, with with Jesus telling them. In fact, we're even further than that because we've had the man born blind in chapter nine, and so we've had all a series of miracles here. And he says he makes an appeal to that. He says, uh, "The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me." Uh, Nicodemus could say, "No one can do these things unless God be with him." So there's a really strong evidential basis for saying Jesus is a Messiah, and yet they're still uh, questioning it, but. What he's, what he, it's interesting how he turns it. He doesn't say, you know, let me pull out my uh, uh, 
proof that I am Messiah based on these miracles. Who could do this? Who could change water to wine? Who could feed 5,000? Who could raise a, a man up from his lameness? Uh, who could you know, heal a man born blind? He doesn't do that. He simply says, my sheep hear my voice, <laughs> and they follow me. You know, in in the at the end of the day, it is kind of the internal call that that makes it work. So, uh, what would what would be said, you know, with regard to uh, uh, a couple of other contexts is, is uh, think about Luke. I'm thinking about the parable of of dives, you know, and Lazarus, right? The rich man and Lazarus, and you know, the rich man appeals to resurrection. He says, if if you know, send send some people back, uh, send some. A man back from the dead, and and you know persuade my my brothers. And the response from Abraham is, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they won't believe these, then neither will they believe a man from the dead. Which of course is exactly what comes true by the end of the Gospels. They don't believe a man who rose from the dead. They didn't even believe Lazarus. Right in the next chapter, that's what's coming up here in chapter eleven. They didn't believe him. So what what really is the distinguishing thing is my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Yeah, there's this great commentary. It's my favorite single volume. I wish every b- biblical commentary was written like this. Uh, the Gospel of John by Frederick Dale Bruner. And he has this little translation and sort of uh, ec- like a brief kind of exposition of this. But he, he says, it's great, his translation. He titles this section, Jesus True Sheep Sermonette, parentheses, Jesus Church. The true sheep trust Jesus solely, who, with the Father, keeps them very safely. In his little translation, he says, The very works that I am doing in the name of my Father bear clear witness to me, but you people do not believe me. And here's the reason why. It's because you're not part of my very special sheep. And he has brackets. Here are the things they do, kind of unbracket. My very special sheep are listening to my voice, and I am getting to know them experientially. Bracket. They are experiencing me, kind of end bracket. They are walking around with me, and bracket, here are three things I am giving to them. I'm giving them deep lasting life and they will never ever perish and no one will ever snatch those people at these people out of my grip. And he has another bracket. And here are the three things about the father and these people that I want you to know. The people of my, the people of my father, the people my father gave me is greater than all other realities. And no one will ever snatch that people out of my father's grip. I and the father are one. And he has this little like sort of just he relists those things that the the people yeah the sheep are the people who first and and most fundamentally listen to Jesus' voice. They're the people who Jesus is getting to know experientially. They're the people who are starting to walk with and follow Jesus. They're the people, therefore, who are receiving deep, lasting life from Jesus. They're the people who are given special assurance of an indefectible security. And they're the people, he repeats for emphasis, who are forever safe in Jesus' grip. And then he just says, the subjective responsibilities of the true people of God in this passage are few, and they might be better described as the special privileges of the true people of God given to them by Jesus. And when these few privileged responsibilities are analyzed, they are found to be eminently simple and taken together spell believing into Jesus. Hmm. And that's just such a simple, great little exposition and translation that, I, it's, you know, that basically it's, and it's not, it doesn't talk about the sort of the quantity of, of, of or, or quality of their faith, but it's the object of their faith. They're, they're listening. They might at times be hard of hearing, or they might be walking slowly or more quickly, but their, their whole bar- barometer for where they are, you know, the good, the bad days, and everything in between, is the proximity to Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. I, I agree with that. And, and I think, again, there's a strong 
word of assurance here for believers. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. That's a that's a wonderful word of assurance. And uh, I like the even further than that, no one will snatch them out of my hand and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So there's a there's a word of real uh, pastoral comfort here in this passage. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes when people are ang- have anxiety about their own spirituality, their own relationship with God, sometimes people will look inwards and what's going on. And, and here it's almost like, no, 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 look to Jesus. Or, <laughs> don't look to yourself. Right. Look to Jesus. The sheep don't look at themselves. Oh, your wool looks great today. You're, you're part in the flock. It's, they look to the shepherd who also knows what, it, what it's like to be a lamb. Yes. Amen. Greg, thanks for doing this with me, my friend. Okay. Blessings, blessings in your preaching. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today, and thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.